that was very somber, but good morning. It's lovely to see you. Hey, morning. <laughs> Sometimes uh, I always notice with the grade eights as they come into high school, I go, morning, everybody. And they go, good morning. I'm like, no, please, please, please. We're not going to do that. But it is so good to see you. Good morning. Welcome, church. Welcome together. Welcome, visitors. Welcome, those of you who've been here for decades and those of you who have just popped in today. You're just visiting. It is so good to have you here and so good to be together and uh, I really do want to just say thank you again to the band who led us in such beautiful worship this morning. Um, wow, I was, uh, I was reminded of that um, statement of Paul, which he writes, and he says, I will boast in Christ alone, you know? Um, and I felt like that's what we got to do this morning, is we got to boast in Jesus and boast in what he has done. And I think Ingrid prayed it so well, and she said, actually, we've sung some pretty big things this morning about putting our faith and our trust in him. I was thinking of the... Um, the chorus of that, let the walls come down in Jesus' name, declarative prayers that God would move and advance his kingdom in our midst now, today. We don't just sing them because they're melodically saucy. We sing them because they, we actually are the, the yearnings of our very hearts that God would come. And so welcome and thank you for being here. And I, I just, I know Francois prayed and thank you so much. And I, I just, I think my prayer for this morning for us is that God would soften us. Uh, I felt like that's what he wanted to do to receive the word this morning was that he would soften us. And when you're soft, um, the word makes an impression. Actually, it makes an impression that the word is weighty. The scriptures are weighty. They carry their own inherent authority because they come from the mouth of God. And so we, um, let's trust that we're soft this morning as we're listening. No matter where you've come from and how you come here, we'd be soft this morning. And so we are busy doing a series through the book of Philippians, if you did not know that. And uh, I just I have two questions just to start off with. I, I kind of asked the question, why this letter? You might be thinking, why this book? Why are we doing Philippians? And uh, I, so, sorry, maybe before I do that, let me say, what is this letter first? How's that? What and then why? What is this letter? This letter is to a church in a city called Philippi. It's a church where the writer Paul, a group of people, he, he feels great affection towards them. Um, we've heard again and again, and this is a happy letter, it's a joyous letter. Paul's writing to people who he loves. And if we read Philippians, we get the impression that they loved him back very deeply. In fact, the letter that we're reading here is given to a um, man called Epaphroditus who has actually brought a gift from that church to Paul who's in prison. And he writes this letter as a way of thank you and so much more back to this church. And so it's see this great deal of affection, but also Paul puts in this letter things that are just so important. And I think that probably leads us to the why. Why are we doing this letter? Why are we looking at the book of Philippians? It's not because as elders, we play spin the bottle and we put a whole bunch of like books over the Bible and we kind of like see where it lands. That's not how it happens. But I, just, I wrote this down because we are a church that believes that all scripture is written by God for his people. We believe that God has highlighted this book for us to study, to delight in, and to be formed by at this time of our community's life. And we believe that it is for everyone, for everyone here, every single one of us sitting here today in this room. Why? Because it speaks about Jesus. It speaks about the good news. It speaks about salvation and the realities that surround all those who put their trust and their faith in Jesus. This book is for us. And so we want to read it and say, God, impress upon us, shape us, move us. Does that sound good? Are you ready? Good. I'm so very, very glad. So where to now? What is our section that we're doing today? We're doing three verses. Yes, three. Uh, from Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. 
And uh, I, I just, as a disclaimer, before I really get, we sink our teeth in, is I, I've so enjoyed, there's a, a series of videos um, on YouTube, you can find them. It's by a man called John Piper, and it's called Look at the Book. And what he does is through a series of videos, he looks really closely and intentionally at a whole bunch of books of the Bible. But I've particularly been so enriched by his books, um, of his videos looking at Philippians. And so I do just want to encourage you. I think um, part of what I have enjoyed as he's taught, I'm a much more learned man than myself, but I just, in my preparing, I said, God, thank you so much for a man like John Piper and others that I got to read and listen to and things because I think they've shaped something of what I feel I've got to give to you this morning. And so please check them out for yourself. Go enjoy them for yourself. They are incredible videos. Sink your teeth in. All right. So let's read it. The passages that we are dealing with today, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. That's our passage this morning. And uh, the term gospel is repeated again and again and again and again. The good news of Jesus, and not just in this uh, part that we're going to read, but actually in the whole book of Philippians and the New Testament as a whole. And a pastor called Tim Keller says this really beautiful thing. He says, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. I'd love to read that again. Because the gospel is so endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. Some churches might say, our main thing is social justice, or our main thing is worship, or our main thing is generosity or hospitality. At this church, and I believe the church, our main thing is the gospel. Our main thing is Jesus Christ. Paul seems to believe this. So far in the book of Philippians, we see that he says these things like, there's a joy from the partnership in the gospel. We see that in chapter one, verses four to five. He says there's a desire in him to conform to the gospel by his life in chapter one, verses seven. His view of suffering as an advancement for the gospel in chapter one, verses 12, as a platform from which the gospel is boldly preached in chapter one, verses 14. And here in this passage, he calls the church to something very specific. He says to live a life worthy of the gospel and to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's in verse 27. The endlessly rich gospel is to be the center of everything in the church. Everything, all of our, uh, our doings and our beings, who we are, is actually around the gospel and this person of Jesus Christ. One commentator who comments on Tim Keller's beautiful quotes that I read earlier, this is what they say. I'd just love to read it to you, as I think sometimes the words of other people, I'm a words guy. I love reading the thoughts and the articulations of others. I think they're so beautiful, and they, do, uh, they outshine me, definitely. This is what this person says. So what is the gospel, and how is it so endlessly rich? The gospel is the good news that our creator God has taken our sin upon himself in his son and granted us new life by his spirit. How is the gospel so endlessly rich? Because it's the message of the endlessly rich savior. Jesus is inexhaustible. His grace is never ending. His mercy is never fading. His glory is never ceasing. His love is never failing. Jesus will never leave us, won't ever forsake us, 
promises to complete the work that he began in us. Jesus is big enough for all our sin and failure. He unites us despite our differences, leads us despite our foolishness. Despite our rebellion, Jesus forgives us completely because he saved us utterly, cleanses us thoroughly because he redeemed us wholly, and sanctifies us perfectly because he atoned, us, atoned for us sacrificially. In Christ, your salvation is secure and complete now and forever. The gospel. Isn't that beautiful? Like, just what a, what a declaration, actually. This is what we believe. When we say the gospel, we say good news. It really is. <laughs> it's the best news. Do we believe it so? So in this passage, again and again, Paul hits the idea of the gospel. So let's read it one more time, and then we're going to bit by bit, line by line, travel through these three verses, and really trusting that God would just speak through his word, his weighty, authoritative, beautiful word that we get to chew on together. All right. So this is, again, what we're dealing with. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. So let's begin. He starts off, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word only is quite important. Many commentators take a pause and they stop there. And that word only, Paul is essentially wanting to exhort and encourage and lovingly command this church that what follows next is very important. It's something to take note of. He says, actually, if you get this, it's all-encompassing to the Christian life. Actually, and what is that all-encompassing thing? Well, the thing that we need to be sure of is this, is that we, as believers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, live a life, or live life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says it differently in another way. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He's, he's just saying, it's everything. It's all that we are. What are we doing? Who we are is to declare worth, to declare actually that the gospel has worth and it is precious and that Jesus has worth and is precious. We can live life in a manner worthy of the gospel or we can live life in a manner that is not worthy of the gospel. And we see that in the Old Testament a ton of times where it talks particularly about the kings. If you've ever noticed it, sometimes they summarize the entire life of a king and they say, they please the Lord or they displease the Lord or they um, feared the Lord in their day. Simple summary. And in a way, Paul is encouraging us to say, what's the simple summary of my life? What's the simple summary of my private life and my public life? Is it life in a manner worthy of the gospel or is it not? Does that make sense? It's a simple thing. That next set of words, let your manner of life, and that word's actually so interesting. It's translated as manner of life, but actually there's a word that's very similar that's used in Philippians 3 verses 20, and that uh, word where Paul writes in that particular passage, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's the same word, very, very similar, and essentially that manner of life is a a word that essentially means a number of things in the Greek. It means um, policy, means politics. It's like we kind of draw out of there. It means um, city. And it means citizenship. And what the big idea is this, is that does your manner of life show and reveal and emulate the policy, the value, the way of your citizenship, the place that you belong? Who do you belong to? Where are you from? And uh, 
And basically what Paul is saying is this, is bring your life into conformity of your true homeland. A number of times in the Bible it's saying actually that we are not of this world. Jesus prays it. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says they're, they're in the world, but they certainly are not of the world. They belong to a different kingdom. They submit to a different king. We are from a different homeland if we belong to Jesus. And so our citizenship, does our manner of life declare our citizenship to those around us? Paul is saying, bring your life into conformity with your true homeland. And then it says they're worthy of the gospel. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What does that worthy of the gospel mean? Well, it's the declaration and proclamation of our homeland, of heaven, that the gospel, that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. It's the proclamation. You'll hear it in heaven. You'll hear it, the, 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 the heavenly hosts all sing, holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the lamb. It's the proclamation of the place that actually our citizenship is in, is that actually he is worthy. And so that's our constitution. One um, commentator said, that's the constitution of the homeland where we come from. And uh, actually that word worthy could be befitting as well. Like, is your manner of life, both private and public, befitting of the gospel? Does it speak that your life has been touched by the grace of our Jesus? That does it, you know? And that's just not just thrown out at you. It's, it's something that's weighed on me. I've been asking God myself, Lord, my, my thinking, Lord, my dreaming, Lord, my speaking, ooh, some thunder. Lord, all these things, would, would it be worthy of the gospel? Worthy of the gospel, would it point to you? Would it point that would my manner of life show the gospel's worth? We can live in such a way that we proclaim the worth of Jesus and the worth of the gospel. And uh, how do we do that? Well, I think we do that by showing people that the gospel and Jesus are worth more than anything to us. And I'm going to touch on that more a little bit later. The word gospel is mentioned nine times in Philippians alone, over 90 times in the New Testament. It's just, again, this idea of the gospel being massaged in as something of importance, key importance to the church. And Paul starts off this section by saying, only let your life or let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Thank you, Gail. I've been watching that little caterpillar crawl. I, I love it when there are animals that walk into the church. Do you guys remember the Dussie from a while ago? What a time. Highlight of Red Point story, I'm sure. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, Paul is writing to his church in Corinth, and he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And there's a couple of things we can draw very quickly out of Paul's encouragement to another church. And it's this, the gospel is an event. It's a historical event. Jesus Christ died. That's, that's what he's saying. Christ died in that passage. But it's not just an event. It's an accomplishment because he's saying that Christ died for our sins, payment of sins, sin and death broken and done by the power of the death of Christ, his blood shed for us. Not only is it an accomplishment, but it is a message. Paul says, it's something that I preached to you. And I think that even as a church here, we love it week after week, life group after life group, youth after youth, prayer meeting after prayer meeting, reminding us of the message of the gospel, the message of our hope that we carry. And lastly, it is to be believed. Paul says there that you have believed. 
So the gospel is not just this, oh, it's a cool brand of music, you know, that like has a whole lot of clapping and it's a good time. But the gospel is this event, a historical event. We can look back and say, Jesus, you died for me. Then the, the gospel is an accomplishment. Jesus, you died for my sins. My sins were paid for. I've been bought with the price. Thank you, Jesus. It's a message that we can remind ourselves of and hear and preach and declare. Do you get the picture? You can think over it. And then it's to be believed. The gospel is there to be believed. It's not there to kind of be appreciated from afar. It's there to be believed, embraced, and taken in to our very souls and allow it to change and shape us. I think that if we look at the subject of the gospel, we can probably find ourselves eventually on a mountaintop, so to speak, a climax, just a moment where you're like, wow. And for me, one of those passages is 1 Peter 3 verses 18. And in 1 Peter 3 verses 18, Peter writes this incredible thing, different guy completely. This is not Paul writing. And he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Remember, it's an event and it's, a, it's an accomplishment. He suffered once for sins. And he says this, the righteous for the unrighteous. We did not deserve it. The gospel reminds us that the righteous died for the unrighteous. We did not deserve it, friends. We can take a moment there and just pause and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The righteous died for the unrighteous. We sing, we sing that um, song um, from the, that called The Passion where it says, the innocent judged guilty while the guilty one walks free. Those are not cheap words. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And this for me is that mountaintop moment where it just says this, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. To bring me to God. Friends, we are brought to God by the work of Jesus. We could not go near him. There was no way at all but Jesus, by what he has done for us, God, through his incredible love for us and Jesus coming and dying in our place and taking our sin upon him, the gospel, because of the gospel, he has brought us to God. We haven't earned our way there. We haven't prayed some good prayers. We haven't given a whole lot generously because we're trying to like make our way into heaven. No, he brings us to God because the righteous died for the unrighteous. It's an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. So the question is how, what does a manner of life worthy of the gospel look like? I think that's a good question, and Paul begins to answer it. So he, he starts off on the next part of our passage that we've been dealing with. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you and your standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's three things that we can quickly pull out just by looking at that passage, which is hopefully going to pop up behind us. It says this, is that, First one is that standing firm. Paul says, I, like, I will know whether I'm with you or whether I'm not. I will know that you are living a life or a, a worthy of the gospel in a manner worthy of the gospel if, number one, you stand firm. I'll know. First one. And that standing firm is it's a defensive thing. It's like you, you, you set your feet in. You're unyielding. You don't want to move. Secondly is striving. He talks about striving together. Actually, are we striving? That's not being set in one place. That's moving. It's advancing. He says, I'll know that you are... Um, Living a life worthy of the gospel, actually, if not only do you stand firm when you need to, but you are striving as a people and advancing the gospel forward. It's a military term, actually. It's a term that the retired Roman generals and commanders would have known who lived in Philippi because they would have known what it was like to strive forward as an army and take ground and advance. They, they would have been like, that's for us. We got you. And uh, I, I really loved, there's a, there's a comment that I'd like to put on this on striving because striving can have a negative connotation. We're like, oh, in, in, in the Christian walk, we don't strive. You know, we don't strive. The grace 
God. But there's such, I'd love to share this um, message that a pastor gave to their church, like a sort of in-house thing. And this is, how, how beautiful is this? They say, we do this side by side because we're strongest that way. Teamwork indeed does make the dream work. In a courageous, gospel-centered church, there are no passengers. We are all involved. Yes, some unbelievers may be among us, checking Jesus out. And yes, some people need to come in and rest for a while. But there is a big difference between a church that has pastors on staff to do the ministry and a church doing the ministry. Christ is in you. You don't need to wait for us to go serve and love your neighbor for Jesus' sake. You don't need our permission to gather with another person and study the Bible. We want to lay down some pathways and make it easy for you to jump in. We want to help you in any way we possibly can. But because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are ready right now to take that next step, whatever it is. You do not have to ride the bench on Jesus' team. He is sending us all out onto the field. We all matter for him. Let us strive together. What a a good reminder to us, actually, every single one of us. I wish I could go around the room, take each of your hands and say, that is for you, and that is for you, and that is for you, because it is so easy to ride the bench. It's so easy to think, well, everyone else, we've got people doing like music, it's amazing. We've got guys hosting and stuff, running the meeting. Like, that's pretty, it's cool. But I'd love for us, actually, to say, Jesus, I want to count. I want to count. I'm not just going to come and um, sit here on this white plastic chair and think, that was a cool message. Thank you, Lord. But actually go out and say, God, I want to strive with God's people. I want to go do something for you. I want to push the gospel forward, as we heard Ingrid so beautifully put last week, to advance the gospel and the kingdom forward. So the third thing, so standing firm, number one. He's like, I will know that you're living a life uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel. If you stand firm, if you're striving together, third one, that you're not frightened, that you're not frightened. It's very simple. Despite opponents, despite people standing up and saying, you fool, you bigoted fool, you are, you are archaic, You're, the stuff that you believe is so, it's so unwoke, it's just like, oh, what are you even doing? You're so foolish. But I think what we know, as Paul's saying, is that this is a battleground, not a playground. It's, it's the Christian life is not just, oh, like, well, just, what blessing is there for me? No, it is this battleground, light versus dark, the kingdom of heaven pushing against the kingdom of darkness that is retreating and at the end of the age will completely be done and dusted. But for now, we as God's people get to contend and stand firm and strive and actually not be frightened of these things. But I think we've left something out. There are three very obvious things, but there's a fourth very obvious one as well. And if you look at that passage as a whole, there's, a, there's some words I'd like to draw out. Unity is a very big deal to Paul. If you look, you can see words um, in that passage, such as, let's see, come and see you, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. Uh, let me see, side by side for the faith. These statements of unity amongst God's people. And like, let's just take a pause, Red Point Church visitors, people who find yourself in the room this morning. Because we can talk unity till the cows come home, but unity is something that is lived. The unity is something that we've got to embrace. And I think this is like a very simple practical thing. But if you don't know the person who's sitting next to you, it's very hard to be unified with them. You know what I'm saying? So in a church, if we don't know the people, and that's not just, oh, no one said hello to me. You have a voice. You have hands and a face. Go over, cross the room and say, hey, we're in church together. We're going to spend a long time together as well. So like, like actually, hi, I'm so-and-so. Who are you? Come to my house for some tea. That sort of thing. If we don't know who we're with, how can we strive together? How can we be unified? So it's more than just we share a space and breathe the same oxygen for a while. It's we actually need to know each other. So Red Point Church, get to know one another. Simple thing, simple homework. 
from today. So don't run off afterwards. When we start closing off, and I, we, we know. Some guys are like, oh, yeah, don't want to get caught in the traffic. I'm like, stay, linger, get to know each other. Because actually, unity is something very precious. And it's something that's very important to Paul. In fact, he says in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 2, which was read at prayer meeting this morning. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing, unity, sharing, partnership in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, so tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being what? Like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul is explaining something here. He's saying that actually a, a life or a manner worthy of the gospel is one that is united. It's one that's together. It's a, that, that's how we do it. It's standing firm in the gospel, striving out into the world to spread the gospel, courageous and fearless, even facing opponents that come against the gospel, and all of this, all of this happening with one spirit, one mind, unified together, one heart. That's what Paul's getting, in unity. I think living a life like this shows the preciousness of the gospel to people around us. And uh, there's, um, he carries on, he carries on in our, our portion of scripture that we're doing. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. And I just took want to pause there. This the life, the thing, the striving, the standing firm, the, um, the being unified together, the not being afraid. That's the sign to those who are watching, those who are looking, saying, the gospel's real. The gospel's precious. Jesus is alive. He actually saves. And um, John Piper, I'm going to refer to him here quite specifically. He um, has this saying, which I love. It's this, standing and striving fearlessly and standing and striving in unity. And I love that phrase. And I, you've got to ask the question, fearless of what? Like, what is God calling us to not be afraid of? Because you can imagine, uh, I climbed a tree a, a while ago that I needed to cut down. It was incredibly tall. I was very scared. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Live fearlessly. No fear. You know, there's me. My legs were literally doing this on the tree, and I was trying desperately to cut, and there's Kate at the bottom. You're doing great, baby. Like, it was wonderful. And so I felt very manly in that moment when the tree fell. Thank you, Jesus. It was a good moment. But... Um, but I don't think he's calling that into a life of no fear. But Paul actually gives us some tastes of what we don't need to be afraid of. And so let's have a look. The first one, I believe that Paul highlights us is prison. You don't need to be afraid of prison. Some of us are like, that's a, that's a strange thing. But let's have a look. 1 verses 8, chapter 1 verses 8 of Philippians. He says, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Like he's saying something about the gospel is going to um, release you from fear of coming to prison. And that was a very real thing in those days, that actually you would be imprisoned for your faith. There are places in the world now where you will still be imprisoned for your faith. But I think that's a very important thing to these people to hear. And I don't know what prison looks like for us. I don't know what we can dot, 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 fill in there. But the gospel frees us of fear. We can live, what's it? Stand firm and strive fearlessly because of the gospel don't need to fear prison. Next one we don't need to fear is loss. We don't need to actually fear loss. What do I mean? Paul in chapter 4 verses 11 to 13 says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, to know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And, and you're 
probably have read that last verse there with a bit of isolation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, come on. I can do this business deal, or I can raise these kids, or I can pay this petrol price, whatever it may be. Um, (laughs) But the reality is that it's bound into that passage where actually Paul is saying, he says, I know what it is to be brought low. I can be brought low. I can lose my reputation because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Actually, he is infinitely more worth, worth it and worthy than that. He says, I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I've learned how to face plenty and hunger. I can be hungry and be okay because of the gospel. That's what he's saying to these people. He's applying that thing. He's saying, I can do all things. I can be in need. He says, you can be in need and your needs are met actually through the gospel, through Jesus, through your relationship with God. So he says, don't be afraid of loss, Philippian church. In Philippians chapter three, verses seven to eight, he carries on, he expounds that idea further. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That um, phrase that I, I was feeling in worship, we boast in you, Jesus. We boast in you, Lord, because actually he is utterly worthy and utterly wonderful and utterly compelling and I, I, I don't know how we could come and be his people together hearing the word and leave unchanged. I don't. It makes no sense to me because he, he in a mere um, tiny engagement with people, if we read in the Bible, utterly changed their life forever. You know, if we really do believe that Jesus dwells amidst his people, if we really believe that we're meeting with him on a Sunday, then I believe that every Sunday, every life group, every prayer meeting, every coffee that we have with one another, every moment we see each other at the shopping mall in the aisle, whatever it is, is an opportunity and a moment to leave completely changed because Jesus is there. Jesus is there. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Maybe you're saying, what if they take away my house? What if they take away my money, my reputation, my dreams for my life? What if like, people think I am the worst? What about my comfort? Well, Paul in that passage above says it's, he like, takes stock of those things. He says, I count it all as nothing, as rubbish, as dung. Why? Because Christ, because the gospel is infinitely more precious to him. I, I want to live like that. Friends, I want to live like that. I don't want to get bogged down with the stuff and the things and the worrying about bonds and the worrying about how we're going to pay for this and buy us and I want this thing. I would love the freedom that Paul is, I think, alluding to this. Actually, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. God, I trust you to sort everything else out, but it's Jesus. The last thing that I believe he says we don't need to be afraid of is death. In chapter two, verses 29 to 30, he, he talks about Epaphroditus and, and, and he says, so receive him, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died. He nearly died. Why? Doing what? For the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Nearly died, risking his life. We He's saying, church, you don't need to be afraid of death because of the gospel. Don't need to fear prison. You don't need to fear loss. And you don't need to fear death because of the gospel. Three big things. He says, but the gospel is infinitely more precious and infinitely more valuable. So if the gospel shows itself as precious and worthy and how we no longer fear these things, then how does it show itself precious and worthy unity? Because that's the second thing that John Piper touched on. He was like, it's striving in fearlessness and striving in unity. And I think this is um, Philippians chapter two, verses two to five is a really beautiful description of that unity. Paul says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's unity. 
That's unity. I don't know if you've ever felt united with people. It's a, it's a really precious thing. Like, have you ever been to dinner with some friends or something like that or just spend some time with guys? You're just like, I just feel like our hearts are like this. You know, I just feel like I, like I know you love me and I love you and I know we're in this together and it's a beautiful thing. And so you probably ask the question, I want that, so how do I get it? How does church live in unity? Such a good question. Well, I think he answers it in verse three of that Philippians chapter two. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. And then there's the promise, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have been united to Christ, if we have been united to Christ, if we are followers of Jesus and have put our trust in him as Lord, then actually that is available to us. And suddenly we are able to do these crazy supernatural things of doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or being humble and counting others more significant than ourselves. Oh, that's hard, friends. We can chuck it out here and be like, that's such a nice idea. Oh, put that on my fridge. You know what I'm saying? But it is hard to do. It is really hard to do because we are inherently what? Anybody? A word? What are we inherently? Selfish. I love that. I tell that to my kids at school all the time and they're like, ah, I'm like, no, we are. We're inherently selfish. There's this person who comments on this passage and they say this, the gospel severs the root of selfishness that is behind all disunity. The gospel severs the root of selfishness. Friends, let those words sink into you. It severs the root of selfishness that is behind all disunity. I've been amazed in my own heart how defensive I am. Hey, Kate? Kate's like, "Mm," testify. But I am so self-defensive, and it's always someone else's fault before it's mine. Do you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're like, oh. some of you are looking at your husbands or wives. Like, careful, careful. That's not the time. <laughs> All right. But uh, actually, I often say to the children at school, I say, guys, sorry builds a bridge in an incredible way. Go say sorry. But it's not, it's not my fault. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Go say sorry. Get over yourself and go say sorry. What does the gospel do? The gospel severs the root of all selfishness, which is the cause of all disunity. Actually, the gospel teaches us to live beyond ourselves. Because why? Because Christ did not consider his own interests, but he considered us more, um, more valuable than himself. Jesus demonstrated. Follow Jesus. All right. So, and we trust that, and maybe one last little comment on that, and I'm going to start trying to weave this thing quickly to a, a close, which I hope, hope goes well. Who can say? <laughs> but I'm having a wonderful time. Are you guys Okay. Yeah, that's good. I'm so glad. I've seen some like smiles and things. It's so encouraging. Thank you. You have no idea. Some, sometimes you look, I just feel, as I understand, you're like, the gospel, <laughs> just touching that person's life. But I think those two sets of thoughts there of like actually um, standing firm and striving fearlessly and standing firm and striving in unity, I think they, they need a promise, actually, how we can do them. And I think we get that from Philippians chapter 4, verses 19. And this is what Paul says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read that again because it is a precious promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. Riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel right there. And actually we will be able to live fearlessly when we believe that God will supply our need. We will, because we're not going to say, well, if I go to prison, what's going to happen? Or if I lose this, what's going to happen? We are able to say, God, I trust you. I know my God will supply every need. 
And in terms of unity, if we don't believe this, if we don't believe that God will supply every need, we will manipulate and use people and hurt one another because we don't believe that actually God will supply the need. And so actually let's learn to live out Philippians 4 verse 19 and our everyday living, breathing, doing together is that actually I believe that God is going to meet my need. Why? Because Jesus, in Christ Jesus, there is what his, I've lost the thing there, his riches in glory. There's abundance. God's got it, you know? And we don't need to hurt each other, manipulate each other for stuff because actually our needs are met in Jesus, in the gospel. Is that making sense? It's a very practical thing, but I think it will make life together so much better. All right. If you don't believe this, we'll be afraid. But if we do believe this, we we live without fear of those things. So let's finish to the last little bit of the passage that we've had today. This is a clear sign. So Paul carries on writing. This is a clear sign to them who, the opponents to the gospel that he mentioned earlier, It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. First little thought, don't be scared of those words where it says they're a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. What he's saying is this, it will be clear that you belong to different kingdoms. You come from different places. You and me, if you're a follower of Jesus, we belong to the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. We live by his values. We answer to a different Lord and a different king. Our constitution is completely different to that of the world. The world will look at us and say, enemy, opponent. Jesus prays it in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, Lord, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for it. Jesus says, you will have trouble in this life. And that's not just trouble because it's calm and things like that. But it's also trouble because the gospel is hated by the world. It is of a completely different kingdom, a different place. That scripture where it says that um, God has taken us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's darkness and light. It's completely different. So don't be afraid of the thing of destruction and salvation. Like, oh my goodness, no, we're in different sides. That's what commentators say, we're on different sides. If they do not believe in Jesus, they have not put their trust in him. If he is not their Lord and they've been washed by his blood, then they are on the other side. They're on the other side. And what is their end? Their end is destruction. What's the end of those who oppose the gospel? Say, you fool, Jesus isn't real. Why are you holding on to such an archaic, useless thing? Unfortunately, for those opponents, it does say that the end, it will be destruction. But our salvation, the gospel, destruction to some, salvation to others. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And it says that from God. Like actually, God's doing this all. And one commentator then goes on to comment about this thing about, you've been granted that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. This is what they said. They said, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. It says, we tend to think that suffering means our destruction. Hey. Hey, oh, I'm suffering. How are you? Oh, I'm not good. Why are you not good? I'm suffering. It's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Let's keep reading. We think it's our destruction. But Paul says that's not true. Suffering can't ultimately destroy us. Suffering can't ultimately destroy us. Suffering destroys them. That's what a strange thing to say. Those who persecute us. When you suffer for Jesus' sake, it is a sign of your salvation from God. It is a sign that God is with you, not against you. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5 verses 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he says again in Romans 8 verses 17 that as we suffer with him, it proves that we are his children and that we'll be glorified with him. Paul views suffering in a completely different light. So how I think we do. 
And I think we've got to allow the word of God to adjust us. I watched a, 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 we were watching an episode yesterday where this person in the field, this person had been crushed under a car and their arm had been dislocated. And she had to, okay, one, two, and she like, readjust it back into place. Sometimes we've got to allow the word of God to wrench our limbs and wrench our heart back into the correct positioning because we limp and we walk around with all of our offenses and our sort of mixture of the world's theology and what's in the Bible and these half-truths. Instead, I think sometimes the scriptures come and put us into, adjust us back into position. So let it happen even this morning. The apostles rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. They rejoiced. It's an incredible thing. Maybe a last bit as we bring this thing to a close. How do we stand then, friends? How do we stand in a world that wants us to fall? How do we do that? Because I think if you read this letter from Paul, and you, you can see there's this advancing, but there's a very real world that does not want the gospel to go forward. Even sometimes that reality is within us. We're like, God, it's inconvenient. God, oh, it's going to cost too much, Lord, all those things. So how do we stand? That's such a good question. The first, so I've, I essentially, think of it like a four-legged chair, all right? One leg, it's okay, but it's not going to do you any good. Two legs, also pretty cool, but the chair's not going to stand. Three legs, now you're talking. I'm going to add a fourth leg in there just for a bit more stability. All right, so four legs as we bring this to a close. The first one, church, I believe that we will stand well in a, in a, in a, in a world that does not believe in Jesus and a world that wants us to fall if we are consistent. The first leg, I think, of our chair is consistency. We are citizens who represent the kingdom that we belong to. Our practice must match our proclamation. It must. So, you know, the, the world says, oh, hypocrites. I, I think sometimes they are very, very valid in their assessment of us. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us. That our proclamation must also be our practice. Does our living prove that we have been touched with the gospel? I, I believe the world is watching. The second leg of the chair is unity, as we've spoken so much about this morning. Um, standing firm, don't leave your post. It's defensive. And not just one person. I mean, if you're one person, you can probably hold off maybe one or two people. But if we all stand together, if I got a whole bunch of people up from the front here to come join me and then ask some of you to run at us, we'd probably be able to hold you off pretty well. Because in unity, there really is strength. As you stand together, your odds for victory increase. As we strive together, there's, uh, Christianity is a team sport basically, is what Paul is getting at. It's this team sport, and the world is watching our unity. It does not mean unanimity. Yeah, I knew I'd get this word wrong. I love it. Unanimity. There we go, which comes from the word unanimous. Unanimous meaning we all agree. We're all the same. Our heads are exactly the same. I don't think that's necessarily true. It does not necessarily mean that we all are thinking the same way. Praise God that we don't. Praise God that each of us are different, and we think differently. It does not also mean uniformity. We don't certainly look the same. If you have a quick little glance around the room, you'll see that. We don't look the same. And even our lives in many ways, excuse me, don't look the same. But Jesus finds unity to be incredibly important. And he prays in Gethsemane. He says, Father, as you and I are one, make them one. That's the prayer of Jesus for us. So unity is our second leg. How do we stand in a, war, in a world that wants us to fall? By having consistency and by having unity. Third one, by having bravery. Bravery is important. And that word where it talks about um, living fearlessly is actually a word that has a picture attached to it, which is of a stampeding herd of horses. If you love horses, this is for you. And, uh, and the horses, if they're um, freaked out and they run because there's a snake in the pen or something like that, there's a term that was used in the old days um, where they would say that a horse, if it was skittish or easily frightened, they called it a battle-shy horse. And uh, one commentator, I, I, they used that term, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And they just said, don't be a battle-shy believer. 
Don't be skittish. Stay. Be brave. Fight. Guts it out. Be there. You're not alone. Certainly not alone. But also the Spirit of God who never leaves. So, when opposition and persecution comes, it is a sign from God. It shows that you, which side you are on and which side they are on. Take courage. By standing together as citizens of heaven, it requires immense courage. Why? Francis Schaeffer puts it like this. He said, the early Christians were not persecuted because they worshiped Jesus. They were persecuted because they worshiped Jesus only. And I think that's something for us. Actually, if we just kind of do our thing, I don't think the world will very much care. But if we start to say, actually, it's Jesus, who is infinitely valuable and infinitely precious, then I think the world will care, and we shouldn't be surprised when opposition comes. One last little thought on bravery, and then I'll finish with my last line. Jesus uh, gives us a demonstration of that, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's just finished praying, and the soldiers come and say, we're looking for the man they call Jesus. Well, Jesus is like, who are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for the man, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't go, oh no, like a little scream, like, oh gosh, this is so frightening. What does Jesus do? He stands and says, I am he. Bravery, courage. Take courage from Jesus. Actually face up and and let's do these things. Let's live fearlessly. Because why? It's a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Lastly, I think the final leg of our chair is suffering. Uh, we, we, We need suffering. You think, whoa, okay, take it easy. But he uses the words there. It has been granted to you to not only believe, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. It's actually a privilege when we get to suffer for Jesus. Philippians 3 verses 10 says this, Paul writes, is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. And maybe just to expound on this thing of suffering, I really love this thing that I came across. I want to share it with you. Someone wrote it like this. Suffering makes us like popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Suffering makes us like popcorn. That heat and that pressure, hey, popcorn. Yeah, like delicious popcorn. That heat and that pressure expands us and cracks a hard exterior and makes us delightful to others. And I thought, what a strange way of describing that. But then, actually, if you look into it, I think that makes sense. Why? Because suffering makes us patient. And I think people want to hang out with people who are patient. Makes us delightful. Um, (laughs) This one young man, a young preacher, went to an old preacher and said, I need to grow in patience. Would you pray for me? He said, no problem at all. Laid his hands on and said, God, give this man trial and suffering. And... uh, (laughs) Because actually, the Bible tells that suffering produces endurance. The other word for that is patience. So the suffering produces it. So actually, it makes us patient. Next one. Suffering can lead to an abounding in hope. I think people want to hang out with hope, hopeful people. The church should be the most hopeful. I think it was you, Francois, said. The church is the most hopeful place. Man, Romans 5, verses 3 to 8. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. May we be a more hopeful people. And suffering makes us sensitive to others who suffer. And I think the world takes note of how we suffer. I think they do. I think when times get tough, the world looks at Christians very carefully to see what actually their real testimony is. Because I know they use the toothpaste metaphor a lot. But what is inside of you will come out when you're squeezed. Um, When that taxi swerves in front of you. When that person hits your car. When the bond repayment is put up yet again because of the the interest rate. All of those things. Actually, what's in us comes out. Jesus, may you come out of us (laughs) in that moment, please. And so he finishes off his declaration to this beautiful church in our passage today and says, um, suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now that I, here that I still have. 
What did they see that Paul had suffered? Let's read it as we bring this to a close. It says in Acts chapter 16, which is where Paul kind of, this is, is all kind of starting off with the Philippian church. The crowd joined in attacking them, Paul and Silas. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What did they do as they suffer? What, what had this church seen in Paul's life? It says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And the prisoners were listening to them. And I think actually, I mean, we want to shy away from suffering, but there is a key here. Paul's put it clearly there for us. that Actually, as you suffer for Jesus' sake, it's a testimony to the worth of the gospel. It's a testimony to the worth of Jesus. So the world is watching. Who you and I are on our worst days is a powerful testimony of our Lord. And if you are suffering right now, friends, today, in this moment, as you sit here with us together, know that even our suffering can be used to point to and proclaim the hope and the worth of the gospel of Jesus. So those are our three verses this morning. Um, Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. Simple declaration, actually, of who we should and could be. And I don't know about you, but I, I, as I've studied this, and maybe as you've heard this this morning, maybe you're feeling a little bit like, Jesus, I fall short. I know I do. Uh, as I read this, I kind of heard about, like, what's it, standing firm. I thought of all the times I haven't. Striving together. Oh, I thought of all the times I hadn't. Um, living fearlessly. I thought of all the times I hadn't. Unity. I knew there were moments of unity in my life, but there certainly are moments of disunity as well. And I just thought, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I fall short so spectacularly of this glorious picture of what a gospel community looks like. And so to land us, there's a promise in Philippians 1 verses 6. And if you're feeling like that this morning, I want to turn your eyes to Philippians 1 verses 6 where it says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. Friends, we need him. We need him to live the spectacular supernatural life. And actually the life of a community who, who, who knows the gospel, who loves Jesus, it's, it's spectacular. It's an adventure. I look at that and my, my heart just like, mm, you know, do you ever get that? And you just like look at something like, God, I want to count in that way. That is a glorious picture. But maybe you're trying to, sitting there and disqualifying yourself. I, I want to remind you that we can be sure of this. Sure of this, that actually he, Jesus, who began a good work in you and in me, he'll finish it. Amen. He'll finish it. Believe it. Embrace it. Mull over this together. Thank you so, so, so much for listening. France, I'm going to call you up. <laughs> Thanks,